Excellent. Well, good evening. A little, little loud. Uh, I just realized this, this clock on the podium is a little slow. It makes sense why we get out a little late on Sunday mornings. I appreciate y'all being here uh, this evening. We're going to continue our, our uh, exploration in the book of Jonah. Uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll just jump right in. Father, thank you for uh, our time tonight. Thank you for the ability to open your word and the freedom to be able to do it. Father, I just ask that as, uh, as we explore and as we learn, I pray, Father, that you would give me the right words to speak. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, teach us something new about who you are and that you would... Um, do a work in our life tonight, Father. Let your word uh, implant itself in us, Father, and give us the courage to obey it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we, we, uh, we left off last week at the end of chapter 2, and we saw Jonah get, uh, go through a, um, some introspection in the belly of this fish, and he was, uh, he was thinking about and contemplating uh, what it meant to be this child of God and, and came to a decision. And so once he finally repented, he, uh, God, God caused the fish to spit him up. Um, and so what we're going to find tonight is we're going to find him continuing his journey. God's going to come to him again and give him a renewed call to go to Nineveh. And um, he's going to call him to, to preach the gospel. So just 10 short verses here in chapter 3 of Jonah. Um, let me begin starting in verse one. He says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and proclaim to it the proclamation, which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Uh, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat, in the, sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let not, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hand. He, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did, it, and he did not do it. What we're going to look at tonight is we're going to look at um, some of the aspects about God. Remember that the, the primary question that we ask whenever we open God's word, the first thing that we ask is, what does this teach us about God? The second question that we ask is, what does this teach us about ourselves, about humanity? And then from that, we can pull application. One of the mistakes that we make often is that we read God's word and we assume the application comes first. We ask the question, what does this mean to me? And the challenge is if we see that with an unrepentant, soiled heart, we will end up making decisions about our lives that are not accurate according to the way that God sees the world. And so what we're going to look at tonight is this act of obedience from, from Jonah. 
So we begin in chapter, in, in verse one, where he says, uh, where the Lord came to Jonah a second time. One of the things that this teaches us about God is that God is a God of second chances. Um, you know, this is one of the most incredible things about him that he is that he is a God of mercy. Uh, God could have easily been done with Jonah. He could have easily said, okay, I gave you your shot. Uh, I'm done with you. You clearly don't respect me or my authority. But praise God that he is not uh, a God that discards his children. Right? Many of us, uh, or I would say all of us, have had those moments in our lives where we have, we've gone the opposite way from what God had told us to do. And we ended up in the belly of a fish. And we went through some really difficult things until finally uh, the humility that came from being humiliated brought us back to the throne room of grace. Um, I tell my, my girls, I've got two daughters, they're 14 or soon to be 14 and 16. And I tell them life has a way of grinding the humility into you. And it just does. You can, it's just as tough as you want it to be, right? So God is a God of second chances. He comes to Jonah again. He says, hey, I've got a mission for you. It's the same as last time. But, um, you know, what's interesting is that the first time that God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, he gives him a complete instruction. I want you to go and I want you to call out. I want you to herald the way of, of uh, holiness, but this second time, God doesn't do that. The second time, God gives Jonah a step-by-step instruction. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to give them the message that I will give you. I think this is an important distinction. Because one of the things about being a human is that we tend to want to know all the details before we obey. Have you noticed that? That when God calls us and tells us to do something, we want to know every single last bit of everything along the way before we make a decision. But the, the obedience is the point. As my mom used to tell me, delayed obedience is disobedience. And what God does is he says, okay, Jonah, I'm not going to give you all the, all the information that you think that you need. We're going to take this one step at a time. Right? How many times when we were children did, did our mother tell us to do something and we ran out there without any, any instruction. We ready, fire, aim, go after our, um, our project only to find that we are too busy and too, too quick to our task. We don't know what we're doing yet. And so she slows us down. She says, okay, hold up. Let's do this one thing at a time, one step at a time, right? So he tells him, you are going to proclaim this message, the one that I'm going to give you at the appropriate time. Um, he goes on to describe Nineveh, this great city. I want to talk about that for a second because this is, this is really, um, this is fascinating and it's also put some things in context. Now, we're separated from this event by 2,900 years. So it's easy for us in our 21st century uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma heated uh, church building to look back on this and say, well, Jonah, what's your problem? Why do you have to be such a callous bigot? Why are you such a racist? Why are you such a terrible person? Um, let's talk about this great city, Nineveh. Okay, he says that it's a, uh, a three-day walk. What that, what that implies is that's more of a, uh, not a uh, uh, separation of distance to travel to Nineveh. That's a reference to the size of Nineveh. Typically in the ancient world, they would judge the size of a city by how long it took to walk either across it or to walk the perimeter. So Nineveh, uh, based on the ruins that have been unearthed in uh, present-day Iraq, Nineveh sits uh, right on the Tigris River, on the opposite side of the Tigris from the present-day city of Mosul, Iraq. 
This is the hometown of Saddam Hussein, if you remember um, that dictator from the past. And uh, the city itself was, uh, in its heyday, was incredible. It, is the, uh, it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were incredibly brutal and incredibly efficient at their, at their task of, of expanding their empire. It says uh, the city was a three days walk across, which means it probably, the city itself was only a few square miles, but the overarching villages that surrounded the city would have been um, probably about 20 miles across, or I'm sorry, it take, it, the average time to travel was about 20 miles a day, and so it would take about three days to travel around the city. So we're looking at about 190 square miles. Um, the city of Nineveh was sitting right on the banks of the Tigris River. And try to use your sanctified imagination as you, as you put yourself in the, in the place of Jonah as he walks up to Nineveh. He sees a, a walled city that sits on the banks of the Tigris River. It's whitewashed and has beautiful works of art painted on the sides of all the walls. Um, there's a massive wall that goes all the way in the city. It, there are 18 gates that surround the community so that people can come in and out of the city and, move, and freely move for commerce. And strategically, there were towers uh, placed throughout the wall for defense. This is a, uh, a city that was built on a heritage of war. As Jonah would have made his way through the pagan settlements around the outskirts, there would have been farms and, and, and buildings and uh, wildlife. There were uh, refuges for captured wildlife so that the kings of Nineveh and the, no, and the noble, noble families of the Assyrian Empire could hunt. They were most famous for their lion hunts. They would trap lions and turn them loose in these giant reserves around the city of Nineveh. And the kings would build their own reputation by killing the lions themselves. Jonah would have walked through all of these lush green places and he would have seen well-kept fields of wheat and barley, enough to feed the city of, two, of 120,000 people. Water ran into the city uh, from the hills around and fed both the great Tigris River and it was captured by a system of aqueducts that kept the gardens and the palace healthy and lush. It was an incredible city of culture and food and festivals and business. It was a bustling place. All the sights and smells and sounds of the world could be seen as he made his way through the bazaars of Nineveh. And he would see incredible things. The crown jewel of the city was a palace built by King Sennacherib around the 9th century. It was labeled the Palace Without Rival. It was one of the astonishing achievements of the empire. The throne room walls were covered in painted reliefs of conquest, culture, and the torture of those that had been overthrown. Nineveh was an incredible place of beauty. But it was covered in a shroud of fear. Because the Assyrians themselves were not to be trifled with. Crime really wasn't an issue in the Assyrian capital because punishment was so severe. The Assyrians were known particularly for their brutalism. The most criminal offenses carry the sentence of impalement, which is the slow process of piercing a person under the ribs by a large spear and then setting it upright in the dirt and letting gravity do the work of the executioner. Um, they also created the process of crucifixion. 
and the flaying of skin of their enemies where they would skin their enemies alive. One king um, in the late 9th century, mid, late to mid 9th century, um, had his men flay the, the, uh, his enemies and as a statement of his own brutality, he covered the city walls with the skins of the people that he had, that he had conquered. It was routine that they would brutalize people, they would cut off limbs and extremities, gouge out eyes and cut off noses and ears, and they would, they would walk around mangled as a testament to the might and the power of the Assyrian Empire. This was a brutal culture. Of all the things that the Assyrians were known for, the brutality and skill of their torture techniques are at the top of their most prized achievements. And it was common for their walls to be proudly displayed with paintings and renditions of their treatment of those who were unfortunate enough to be conquered by them. Nineveh was a beautiful city, but it was built on a brutal culture. And so for a Hebrew prophet to be called to Nineveh was a brutal calling. Look at what, it's, look at what it says about Nineveh. He says that Nineveh was indeed a great city. But notice how scripture defines the greatness. It says that uh, God says to go up to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim, it, proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Um, you know, one of the things as you, as you dig through that, that phrase, a great city, it can be translated as a city that is important, a city that's influential, a city that is significant for its time, but the language in Hebrew here implies that it was not just significant in history, but more importantly, God is the one who defines it as a great city. God is the one who defines it as a great city. Now, based on what we know about, our, about God and his scripture, our God is kind and he is just and he is merciful. So why would God say that this is a great city? Well, let's think about this. What is important to God? Because in order for us to know why God would define this as a great city, we've got to understand why God would say that this is an important thing. Why is this an important thing? Scripture tells us that God is an incredibly personal God. That no matter where we come from, no matter what mistakes we've made, whether they are insignificant in our own estimation or they are brutal to a global scale that makes history shudder, God still feels the same way about all of his created beings. So in, in God's eyes, we've got to remember that we are all sinful and that we are all wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says this. It says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give to each person according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. The same God that said these words to the prophet Jeremiah believes them about the people of Nineveh, that the heart of man is desperately wicked and is deceitful. The same God also says this in Psalm 14, verses 2 through 3. He says, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
The testimony of Jonah about the character of God gives us hope. Look at what um, the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3. He says this about, uh, about God's revelation. He says, starting in verse 21 of Romans 3, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. About Jonah. Jonah, his testimony about Nineveh is being corroborated in the book of Romans. He says, uh, he, let me go back. He says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, talking about Jonah, but it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as, a, as the propitiation or the means in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins of previously committed, the previously committed go unpunished for the, for the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It has been excluded. By what kind of law? Works? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Here's the point. Is that God sees these Assyrian brutal pagans in the same way. No. In the same way that he sees Jonah's rebellion. They're the same to God. And so what that means is that when we look at our lives, when we look at God's perspective about who we are as people, it's very easy for us to say, well, my sins are respectable. My sins are in the privacy of the belly of a fish. But those Assyrians over there, those other people, those people that I don't agree with, I don't agree with their I don't know, their politics. I don't agree with their religion. I don't agree with their view of scripture. I don't, view, I don't agree with their lifestyle choices. We have to always remember that we have to clothe ourselves in humility because God sees us the same way that he sees them in our rebellion. Sin is sin no matter how we put it. And look, but the most most amazing thing here though is that our sinfulness doesn't change our importance to God just because these Assyrians were were brutal people were terrible people it doesn't change the way that God sees them it still was an important city because these are people John 3 says this about God's importance and how how he he uh, prioritizes people this isn't just about us this is about them too For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world but so that the world might be saved through him. The one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. But to the one who practices the truth, 
he comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. John three sixteen through 21. The idea here is that what's important to God does not change based on my sinfulness. I am important to God because I am important to God. The Apostle Paul continues in Romans and he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone will even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The idea here is that while we were Ninevites, while we were brutal, while we were rebellious, while we were undercutting everything that God had designed that was good in the world, died for us. It's very easy for us to compare ourselves to people that have open struggles. But we've got to remember, as we walk in our obedience and we see others who are, in our minds, not important, we have to remember that our God is a God who prioritizes the lost. Because he says in Psalms 139, he says, For you created my inner parts, my innermost parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will, I will give thanks to you because I am awesomely and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows very well. The challenge for us is that we tend to qualify our obedience. That somehow we have to... Um, Help God understand how bad those other people really are. But that's not the way that this works. As I was studying this, I, I, was, I was reading these accounts of what people had suffered under the Assyrians. And I, I mean, it's brutal. It is so brutal. Um, and you know, I couldn't help but, rem- but be reminded that Jesus said that to a person who hates their brother or sister is the same as putting them to death yourself. That to lust for another person is the same as committing adultery. That the thoughts and the intentions of our heart are wicked and whether or not we openly display them, they are offenses against God. All of these things are qualified the same. But what does this teach us about God? This is the, I love this. I, I'm always reminded, when I, I read this passage in Lamentations 3 when I, was a, when I was a young man, when I was a teenager, and it gave me hope. Lamentations is a very difficult book to read. Many of you probably studied it. It is just, man, it's, it's rough, right? But in the middle of Lamentations in chapter 3, there's this little gem that I, I want to share with you about God's goodness. Beginning in verse 19, he says, remember, remember my misery and my homelessness, the wormwood and the bitterness. My soul certainly remembers and is bent over within me. I recall this to my mind. Therefore, I wait. The Lord acts of mercy, her Lord's acts of mercy indeed do not end, for his compassions do not fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who await him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone and be quiet, since he has laid it on him, meaning God. Let him put his mouth in the dust and perhaps there is hope. 
Let him give his cheek to the one who is going to strike him and let him be filled with shame for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion in proportion to his abundant mercy. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of mankind to crush under one's feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud someone in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. What this does is this teaches us that God's character is one who sees people before we even get into Jonah getting into the city limits. God has told us exactly who he is yet again. That he is a God who sees the pagans, who sees the brutal, and he sees them as important. Why else would he send a prophet to the most dangerous town in the world? So Jonah makes his way through the lush gardens and he begins to walk into the city. He makes his way past uh, two large uh, statues. Uh, each gate had uh, two giant um, amethyst bulls with uh, heads of men. This is the pagan god that was supposedly going to pro- provide protection for that city. So Jonah's trip into the city was short. He, he makes it one day. He travels... You know, it's presumed to uh, most of the city. It says he travels for one day, a one day's walk, uh, when it takes three to circle the city. This phrase says more about his travel through the city than how he felt about being there. We have to be content to be silent where Scripture is silent because um, if we read that just on its face value, it'll tell us that, that Jonah just walked in as, as far as he needed to. He said his piece and he turned around and he walked out. But based on the response of the people, we can't say that. It's, it's easy for us to read Scripture and, and embellish it with our own assumptions. And assumptions are dangerous, especially with God's Word. And so what it tells us is that he walked one, a day's worth of walk into the city, and he delivers this, probably the shortest missionary sermon of all time. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, most likely, he probably said some more words than this um, because there's no call to action. There's, no, there's no, uh, nothing that he's given them to do or to say. Um, but, you know, think about Jonah, though. This guy just finished a three-night stay in a giant fish. And if he knows anything, he knows that God is certain, that God will do what he says he's going to do. And so he... he he uh, walks to the, to the center of the city in my mind. He, he proclaims this, own, this, own, this, uh, this message. The word that's used uh, in this phrase, if 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, the word overthrown is a word that's applied um, in other parts of Scripture to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's not just saying uh, within the context that uh, there's going to be this ragged band of raiders that are going to come in and overthrow the city. He's saying God is going to send fire from heaven and consume you. That's what he's saying. Hellfire and brimstone. Y'all need to shape up. Now, it's interesting. God told him at first that uh, I want you to go and cry against the city. He said that in chapter 1, verse 3. But this next time, he tells him, you go. And when you get there, I'll tell you what you need to say. And so when he gets there, this is what he has to say. He, by all intents and purposes, does cry out against the city. But what's happened is that God has taught him along the way, 
that to call for judgment against someone that you dislike is not necessarily something that should be done with a joyous attitude. You know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of influences in our culture that stand against us as believers. That, that we have an onslaught, it seems like, daily, if not hourly, against our way of life. There are some who deny that that's a reality, some that um, they find oppression behind every, every rose bush. But the reality is, is that we do suffer opposition. But, it, but in the process of suffering opposition, we always must remember that our God is a God of grace. Our God is a God of peace, and we are the most, uh, the most obvious testimony to those people that they will ever see. And so we've got to be careful that we don't heap uh, fire and brimstone on people um, and, uh, and proudly just enjoy it. So now we see a response, the power of God. God, clearly these people knew something was coming. You got a Hebrew, he obviously didn't, he, he stood out. He did not look like an Ninevite. He did not look like an Assyrian. He more than likely was, was dressed like a Jew with tassels around his, his garments uh, and a prayer shawl over his shoulder. And so we see in verse 5 that the people respond. It says, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You know, the most powerful thing that can happen to a person's life or in a person's life is to believe in God. That very first statement, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. This is not just the acknowledgement that he exists, but the submission of his godship. Um, One of the things that I talk about often with our young adults is that there's a difference between belief and faith. We typically use the terms interchangeably, that belief and faith are the same thing, but that's not true. Belief means to acknowledge something is a fact. Okay? For instance, I can say, I, I believe that if I sit down in that chair right there, it'll hold me. But until I actually do it, it's all theoretical. Not until I put my rear end in that seat do I actually know for certain that it'll hold me. The difference between faith and belief is that belief is an acknowledgement of a truth. Faith is belief in action. What's being applied here by the text is not that the people of Nineveh said, oh, this Hebrew who has all this credibility from the history of the God of Hebrews that we've known, known all these miracles that he's done. It's not that they're saying, okay, this guy has a credible message. This implies that they took action. That they didn't just say, oh, well, the God of the Hebrews, he's, he's come here to, uh, to give us some hellfire and brimstone. No, it says that they believed. See, for these people... This is, a, this is a phenomenal thing. You see, whenever we are, we are exposed to the truth, we have one of two responses. We can either repent and we can accept it or we can reject it. Those are the two options for us as human beings. Remember, God's word is a mirror. James tells us that. That as we read God's word, it illuminates us to who he is. And in the process of knowing who he is, that brings an inevitable comparison to who we are. And when we see that we don't match up with God, that leads to conflict. It's like the idea, James uses the picture of a person who reads the perfect law of liberty, the Bible, and he sees what kind of a person he is, 
And if he's a doer of the word and not a hearer only, his life is saved. But if he chooses to not do what he reads, he turns and he walks away and he's like the person who sees himself in the mirror. His hair's all messed up. He just rolled out of bed. His teeth need to be brushed. His collar's all messed up. He's still in his pajamas and he refuses to do anything about what the mirror has just revealed in him. That person is a foolish person. That's what James says. And so God presents himself to these Ninevites. Think about what this, this process of repentance might look like. In First John, the apostle tells us this way. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that we will, he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the message that we've heard from him and we announce to you that the revelation of who God is brings repentance to a heart that's ready to repent. But to those who reject it, these people of Nineveh could have seen this Hebrew prophet stand up on the street corner saying this short little sentence that God is going to send judgment and they could have rejected him. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. He says that God has presented himself to us in obvious ways. But God's wrath is, re- is revealed to those who hear the good news and they reject it. Listen to this. Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of the form of corruptible mankind, of birds, of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. These people in Nineveh are doing this very thing. They are worshiping the creature rather than the creator, But praise be to God whenever his prophet gets up and he says, you are important. And he reveals the simple truth of who God is. They repent. That's the power of God. We we have this, this, this mentality that somehow God needs us to be some sort of cosmic salesman. But the truth is it's in his word. Very little of what I've told you tonight is, is from my own perception. This is mostly just what's in the Word. But notice that the repentance doesn't stop with the people. It moves on to the halls of power. Verse 6. When the Word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, removed his robe from himself, and he covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the dust. And he issued a proclamation and said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no person, animal, herd, or flock is to taste anything. They are not to eat or drink water. But every person and animal must be covered with sackcloth, and people are to call on God vehemently. And they are to turn, each one, from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hand. It's interesting that even the animals got covered in sackcloth. 
Repentance is not something that they wanted to do halfway. This is something that they did comprehensively. We're going to cover all of our bases, every single one of them. This message is credible. It's not just the message, but it's also the message sender. That God sent this message to them on purpose and so that they knew that it was something to be seriously taken, taken uh, into and embraced. Everyone took this danger seriously. But look at verse 9. This is interesting. The king continues and he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. They didn't know. They didn't have the hope to know that what they were doing was going it, to lend itself to the fruit of salvation. Why? You have these pagan people who are known for their brutality who are not sure whether or not this is going to take. But I want to point something out. Their uncertainty didn't change their obedience. Their uncertainty didn't change their obedience. They knew that something was wrong, that they had, been, they had offended the Almighty God. They knew that they stood in opposition to the Almighty God. And that required submission. We tend to think of the, uh, the word surrender in our nice South Tulsa culture as me giving something to God. But that's not how the Bible defines surrender. The Bible defines surrender as actually a peace treaty between two warring nations. In the fourth chapter of the book of James, he says that don't you know that to be the friend of the world is to be God's enemy? He says, don't you know that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble? That terminology that he uses to resist the proud, that's military terminology, that means that God literally sends the armies of heaven against the proud person. When we say that we surrender to God, we are not just giving him tokens of our affection, thanking him for all of his benevolence along the way. When scripture says that we surrender to God, it means that we stop fighting. When two armies come to the end of a war and the generals are sitting across the table from each other, they sign what's called an armistice agreement. And one general signs over his claim to war and everyone puts their weapons away. This is a picture of what our lives are like when we surrender. What, what, what we have the temptation to do is we have a temptation to pretend like we didn't sign that document. We have a temptation to think that we can continue to fight and do things our own way when the, the war is over. The battle's done. It's over. It's been fought and won. But we tend to try to pick that back up again over and over again. What he's saying here is that these people, they stopped fighting. They laid their weapons down. They put everything on the table. And they didn't know for certain if it was going to work. They didn't know. But they had faith. You know, I know that the chair analogy is probably overused and it just makes sense to me. You know, mo for all of your life, you probably have been sitting in chairs. If you think about it. When you were born and they took you home from the hospital... Um, at least in the, you know, in, in the modern generation or the current generation, they probably had you in a seat, in a car seat. They bring you from the car seat and take you home. They have a rocker for you at the, at the house, put you in your little swing. 
Then they put you in a booster chair, high chair. They put you in a booster chair. Then they put you in a real chair. You've been sitting in chairs your whole life. You just didn't know it. You didn't think about it, did you? I guarantee you, you could walk into an antique store and you could see a chair from 1857 and know for a fact that chair is not going to hold me. How do you know that? Experience. Because I've been sitting in a lot of chairs. I've got vast experiences in sitting in chairs. That's the thing about faith, belief in action, is that the first time that you do it, you're unsure if that's going to hold you. You're unsure if the Almighty God is actually going to do what he said he's going to do, that he actually is going to save you, that he actually is going to change your life, that he actually is going to do things that's going to redefine who you are as a person. And so that first step, you are uncertain. But to the others who brought you the message, like Jonah, they've been walking with God for a while. They know he does what he says he's going to do because they've been in the fish for the last three days. But to the person who is new to their faith, this reckless abandon to let go of control is a terrifying thing. To be helpless and surrendered in the hands of Almighty God is a terrifying thing. The comfort comes after the terror. But notice how God responds to these pagan, brutal people. Look at verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. And he did not do it. Man, the grace of our God He delivers Nineveh from punishment. Notice he says that he saw their deeds. They didn't just believe. They actually did something. They actually did surrender. They turned from their evil way. To repent doesn't just mean that we acknowledge our fault before God. To repent means that we turn 180 degrees the other direction. It's not enough to acknowledge that we've we've offended God. That's obvious. You don't, need a, you, don't, you don't need any kind of special degree to, to know that you've offended God by how you've lived your life. But they turned. They turned from their evil way. They turned 180 degrees. A revival broke out in this most pagan, most brutal culture. And God relented the disaster which he had declared he would bring to them. So, what does this teach us about God? You know, I've been asking myself that for the last week as I've been thinking about this passage. We live in a very divided generation. I don't know if you all have noticed that. Very divided. People are upset about everything. They're upset about politics. They're upset about things that don't even matter. You know, vanilla Oreos or chocolate Oreos. I don't even think there's a, that's a debate there, but that's a debate. But you know, as we see people in our lives, as we see people around us in culture, whatever decisions they're making, whoever they are, I think it's very important for us to remember that they are important. They're not important because I say so. They're important because he says so. It doesn't matter who you are. Until a person breathes their last breath, they have the opportunity to know Christ. They have the opportunity to know the forgiveness and the redemption of their life. They know they, they have the opportunity to turn from their wickedness. 
When we walk into Nineveh, we have to be very careful that we don't pass judgment first. We're going to see some things next week about Jonah's response to all of this stuff that is not very flattering. The Jonah from chapter 1 comes back. But my, my encouragement to you tonight is this, that in your daily life, whether you're dealing with conflict with strangers, with politicians, or with family members, remember that you have to see them as God sees them, as important. Whether you agree with their decisions or not, they're important. And God has given us a calling, a responsibility to speak the truth, but not in a proud and arrogant way, to laugh as we say, y'all are about to get it. You're about to get that fire and brimstone just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Man, it's gonna, that's gonna be a, man, you guys are gonna be really sorry when that happens. I can't wait to see that. No, but to be gentle and say, please, I'm begging you. You're too important to waste this part of your life. May we be the kinds of people who see others not as the enemy, but as important. And remember that we carry with us the power of Almighty God to change the world, one pagan city at a time. In Jesus' name, amen.